Good morning. Like I said, I am excited to be here this morning. Well, I know that you guys just came out of a prayer time, but I want to take the opportunity and just pray before we begin. Let's bow our heads and, and do that. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to delve deep into your word. We are thankful that you have given it to us, that we can know you through the study of it. And I pray, Lord, uh, that this time you would bless, you would uh, show us what it is you want us to learn, and I pray that we would respond uh, with open hearts and attitudes of obedience to you. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today uh, and every day. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture from the book of Colossians. So if you have your your Bibles or you have a Bible app on your smartphone, uh, go ahead and tap your way to Colossians chapter 1. In his commentary on Colossians, Bible teacher R. Kent Hughes records an account involving the World Columbian Exposition and that of the evangelist D.L. Moody. Hughes writes... Almost a hundred years ago, in 1893, so, you know, he didn't write this yesterday, the Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago, and an astronomical number of people, especially in those pre-automobile days, some 21 million people, visited the exhibits. America, and in particular Chicago, which had risen Phoenix-like from the Great Fire of 1871, was showing off to the rest of the world, and the show was good. Among the featured of the Columbian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives from the world's religions met to share their best points, perhaps come up with a new religion, one of interfaith. Dio Moody saw this as a great chance for evangelism. He commissioned evangelists and assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city. He used churches, he rented theaters, he even rented a circus tent to preach the word. Moody's friends wanted him to attack the Parliament of Religions, but he refused, saying, I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. Dio Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent as the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job. And indeed it did. The great Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be one of the greatest evangelistic works of Moody's celebrated life, and thousands came to Christ. Now, we understand in salvation that this is entirely a work of the Lord. Nothing we can do can persuade someone to come to know Christ. This is an act of God moving in the heart of the elect. But Moody had the goal of showing people Christ as He is. Not as some greeting card Jesus, one who looks very somber and calm on the cover of a greeting card, or as a Jesus painted on a prayer candle, very stoic and mostly Anglo-Saxon for some reason. A Moody wanted to present Jesus as the Bible presents Him, as the living God of the universe, the one who is above all things. He is above all creation, He is above all angelic beings. He is above all created beings. Everything is subject to Him. Moody's goal was to show people that Jesus, that Jesus, there's an emphasis there I missed, and acknowledge that there was no other place to go. 
This approach, though, is not unique to D.L. Moody. This is the approach the apostles took in the early church to present Jesus as He truly is, as He is first place in all of creation. Now see, back then, back in the time of the apostolic church, Gnostic beliefs had begun to crept into the New Testament church and began to corrupt doctrine. Gnostic teachers taught that Jesus was merely one of many thousands of emanations from an unknown God. Jesus, according to them, was merely a stepping stone to knowing this unknowable God, this God of secret knowledge, certainly not as He proclaimed Himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. The apostolic church knew differently. This is because they knew and believed in the Jesus as is presented clearly in Scripture. And they understood that Scripture is all about Jesus. The Old Testament, we see in the books of the law the anticipation of the coming Christ. Genesis opens with a problem for humanity, a sin problem, and gives us the foundation to anticipate a Savior. We see in the Gospels, Christ made manifest. The anticipated Christ, the one who was promised back in Genesis 3, had arrived and has begun His work on the earth. The books of Acts and the epistles show us Christ as He relates to His church. Hey, how are we, as believers in Jesus, to act? How do we relate to Him? The book of Revelation teaches of His coming coronation, when He will sit on His throne and reign forever. The Bible is all about Jesus, and it shows Him high and above all things. Paul understood this when he penned his letter to the Colossians. A particular heresy had crept into the Colossian church. We know it as the Colossian heresy. Now, we don't know exactly all the bits and pieces of it, or how it fleshes out entirely, but we do know that it included parts of Gnostic beliefs, Greek philosophy, Jewish legalism, occultism, and asceticism. That's the one where you beat yourself because you're a bad person. And Paul, in chapter 1 of his epistle to the church of Colossae, begins to break down the foundation of his heresy by presenting Jesus as he is, by telling the truth about Jesus, that he is supreme. And that's what we want to take a look at this morning. Hey, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15 and we're going to try and work our way to verse 20. Now, my goal is to get through 15 to 20, but if that doesn't happen, I think I'll have the opportunity to come back and finish. Okay, so the goal is to get through verse 20, but we will see what ends up occurring. Okay, so, as I said, if you, if you had your Bibles, we'll make our way to Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and are for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him I say, whether things on the earth or things in heaven. And what we're going to see here from this passage is three ways in which Jesus is supreme. Three arenas where Jesus is supreme. And the first is found in the beginning verse here, the first part of verse 15, and that is Jesus is supreme in eternity. Paul writes again, He is the image of the invisible God. Paul begins here by making a very clear statement about who Jesus Christ is. He calls Him the image of the invisible God. Okay? We know God is invisible, right? We can look around this room and He's not seated in any of these chairs. At least I, I maybe, maybe it's my, right? Like He's not here, right? At least in a visible form sitting in a chair. God is spirit. Now, if that observation wasn't enough, the Bible testifies to the fact that God is not visible by human eye. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Or Hebrews eleven twenty seven. For by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. God is unseen. John 1.18 affirms this when it says, No one has seen God at any time. And John finishes this in verse 18 where he says, that The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He explains Him. Jesus is, as John writes, the literal exegesis of God. Paul calls Jesus the image of God. Now Paul uses a Greek term here, uh, from which we derive our English word icon. It is the Greek word icon. Now, this word can have really two meanings. Okay? The first is likeness or image representation. Okay? There are precedent for it in history. Okay? Historians have come across letters of, 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 so, uh, of a soldier in particular who, who, to his father, he sends him a portrait. He says, I send you this little portrait. That's the Greek word right there, the painting of him. We see the Bible use this term in this way. In Matthew 22, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, Who's, whose likeness and inscription is this? He's Jesus giving his theology of taxes here. Okay, holding up the coin. Whose image is on this coin? Well, Caesar. Okay, so this word can, be, can mean image representation like a painting, but it also carries the definition of manifestation. Which carries a much deeper meaning than an image painted by a painter. You see, Jesus is not just some plaster mold of God. He is God made manifest. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of Hebrews here using the term exact representation. This Greek phrase meant to express the idea that you have seen God in seeing Jesus. The Gnostic belief 
that had crept into the Colossian church taught that Jesus was nothing more than a second-rate ladder rung to God. But this could not be further from the biblical explanation of who Jesus is. Now, some have made the argument, well, of course Jesus is the image of God. Aren't, aren't we created in His image too? Jesus was a man. We're, we're humans. We're created in His image too, right? Hey, well, yes and no. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says that for a man ought not cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God. Genesis 1.26, probably a more famous passage on this, is God speaking to Himself when He says, let us make man in our own image. And in our own likeness, let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the, the cattle. Verse 27, so he created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. Now there's a lot in there, not the least of which for some reason is a super controversial topic of male and female. That's, for some reason that's controversial these days. Okay, but the idea here is that man is created in the image of God. This is different, however, than how Jesus is the image of God. You see, we do not possess the moral image of God. MacArthur in his commentary in Colossians stated it this way, Although man is also the image of God, man is not the perfect image of God. Humans are made in God's image in that they have rational personality. Like God, they possess intellect, emotion, will, by which they are able to think, feel, or choose. We humans, however, are not made in God's image morally because He is holy and we are sinful. We are not created in His image essentially either. We humans do not possess His incommunicable attributes such as omniscience, omnipotence, immutability, omnipresence. We are human and not divine. The fall of mankind and thus the entrance of sin into the world changed humanity forever. Before the fall, we were innocent, immortal, free from sickness, pain. There was no sin. However, Adam and Eve, in choosing to rebel in just about the worst trade deal imaginable, traded those qualities away for pain and sickness and death. Jesus is not like this, though. He is the absolute and complete image of God. He did not become so at the incarnation, as some have claimed. He did not take on the spirit of the Christ as other heretics have claimed at his baptism. And we looked at Hebrews 1.3 already, but I want to look back there again. He says, Hebrews 1.3, the author writes, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He reflects God, not like the moon reflects the light of the sun, but like the sun would reflect the sun. They are one and the same. Jesus testified to this fact in John 14, 9 when He said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Philippians 2, 6, Paul tells the Philippians, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In Jesus, we see the invisible God. Because He took on visible flesh. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Paul here in Colossians is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is complete. The complete, full disclosure of God. He is God in human flesh. The fact, he went out of his way to tell people this. John 8.58, he tells us, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the personal name of God as applying to himself. John 10, verse 30 through 33, And I and the Father are one, he says. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I show you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? And the Jews answered, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Twice, Jesus makes these claims to the Jewish people and twice they pick up stones to kill him because they understood what he was saying. He wasn't making a claim to be from God from the sense of being a messenger just from him. He was making himself to be God. He was stating it emphatically. I am God. The rest of the Bible attests to this fact. John 1, one in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 20.28, 20, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Romans 9.5, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Philippians 2.6, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not e- regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Later on in this, in this very book, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter He writes, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible again and again testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And anyone who claims less is guilty of nothing less than blasphemy and has their mind darkened by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Jesus Christ is supreme in eternity because He is eternal God. He is worthy of our praise because He is eternal God. He is above all forms of systems of human Creation because He is eternal God. So He is supreme in eternity. He is also supreme in creation. Supreme in creation. Picking up in verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and are for Him. I'm going to break this. This is a little bit larger. I'm going to break this into a couple of points here. The first is that 
Paul writes, Jesus is the firstborn. And we need to understand what this means because it is often misunderstood. Paul writes, the firstborn of all creation. Now this sentence, or really it's a fragment, possibly, I don't know English. Okay? This phrase here, if we were to give it a very surface level reading of it, and give no other thought to it, could be used to express the idea that Jesus is a created being. He says He is the firstborn of all creation. However, once we engage our minds and interact with the text, we understand that there could be nothing further than the case here. Modern day mainline cultic groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Gnostic teachers, or the followers of Serinthus from the Apostolic Church, or you get into the medieval ages and you deal with the heresy of, the, of Arius, all claim that passages like this express the idea of Jesus being created in some way. These groups ignore the context, though, found here, and other passages, like John 1.1, for example, that we've already looked at, which teaches clearly that Jesus created. He is God. Hey, now... Some of them will alter the text of Scripture to, to make their point. But again, just because you change what the book says doesn't make it true. The Greek term here used that's translated as firstborn is the Greek term prototokos, which is my favorite one to say. It rolls right off the tongue. It literally means firstborn. Now, this could mean firstborn chronologically. Okay? And there is use case of that being used in Scripture. Okay? For example, Luke 2.7, And she, that is Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay? We know from looking at Jesus' family, he had half-brothers. Okay? The two very famous ones, James and Jude. Hey, but he had other brothers than that too. He had a sister too. Hey, so chronologically speaking, Jesus was Mary's firstborn child. But that is not what Paul is explaining here. There is another definition for this term which carries with it the idea of rank or position. Now we see that usage in something like a passage in Exodus 4, where it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, okay, God speaking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. He is not telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Hey, the Lord, his first child was Israel, and he, he was born to him, and he would, he would like you to let him go. And that isn't what's being said here. That's, it's nonsense to take that sort of a definition there. The term firstborn was a title carrying with it the weight of the highest position. This here is what Paul meant. Jesus is the, as William Hendrickson put it, the one to whom belongs the right and the dignity of the firstborn in relation to every creature. He is prior to, distinct from, and highly exalted above every creature. As the firstborn, he is the heir and ruler of all. In Hebrews chapter 1, 
God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. The author of Hebrews highlighting the idea of being the appointed heir. That's what this is, firstborn. It is that position, that positional power, or position of prestige. Now, there's a lot of reasons to discredit the idea of Jesus being the first created being, as some have said, not the least of which is a logical argument. Here, Jesus is called the firstborn. Well, what does that imply? The secondborn, right? Well, how do you square that with passages like John 1.18, which call Him the only begotten of God? How can you be both the firstborn, again, applying a secondborn, and the onlyborn. That doesn't mesh. Logically, it doesn't make sense. You need to throw out passages which sort of gum up your false interpretation of what's going on here. Okay? You've got to take your penknife out like Thomas Jefferson's, 4th of July, which talk about Thomas Jefferson, okay? and cut out that section of Scripture and throw it away. Further, if... If Paul meant to say that Jesus was the firstborn of creation, that he is a created being, he's actually agreeing with the heretics he's writing to refute. That doesn't make any sense. The context of this verse even, as we will see in a moment, disagrees with this erroneous interpretation. Jesus is the firstborn. He carries the weight, the rank of highest honor. The position of firstborn carried so much weight, it gained more of the inheritance in a family. It was a venerated position. And he is the firstborn because he is creator. He's creator. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Why is Christ meant to have highest honors? Why is He worthy of the position of firstborn? What entitles Him to that? Because He is Creator. He is Creator. Colossian heretics claim that Christ was the first, one of the first of many emanations, but by no means was He Creator God. He came from God, and God Himself came from other unknown gods. Gnostic teachings is strange if you ever get the chance to look into it. Hey, this is the position the Apostle Paul utterly rejects. Hey, Paul's position is affirmed by uh, others who write, who contributed to the canon of Scripture. The Apostle John, for example, John 1.3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Also the author of Hebrews. In these last days He spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Jesus was the agent of creation. This includes all things. Planets, stars, angelic beings, people. John and Paul, the two passages we're looking at, in Colossians and back in John 1, all say that all things came to being through Him. All is a really inclusive word. It's not a narrow word. It it means everything, right? 
If I tell my kids I want them to clean up all the Legos, and they come in and they've said I've cleaned up all the Legos, and I inevitably go into the dining room and I find Legos, we're having a different conversation. Because the word all wasn't observed. I didn't mean some. It makes no difference whether they be material or spiritual. They were created by Jesus. From stars the size of Betelgeuse, you know, whose diameter is like a hundred million miles, hey, to the tiniest noceum that bites you as you're going to go out and grill later tonight after evening church. Jesus created them all. And creation testifies about Him. All over creation, we see the pictures of the intelligent design that was used to create it. The vastness of creation screams of the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse are declaring the work of His hands. There is so much evidence, it is so overwhelming, that Paul tells the church in Rome that to deny it is an act of willful ignorance. It is an act of will, willful choice by sinful men to ignore it. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all are without excuse. Creation testifies to His glory. Paul goes on to say He is above all thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities. While it is true that Christ is above all kingdoms and kings and presidents and parliaments and congresses and all the other names of really important people we can think of and have thought of over the years. Hey, Jesus is above all of those things being Creator God. Here, what's being mentioned here is not just that, but speaking to a part of the Colossian heresy which worshipped angelic beings. These are terms used to describe four distinct angelic groupings of various ranks and would have been clearly understood by the Colossians as such. Christ, in contrast, created the angels. Hebrews 1.7, of the angels, He says, who makes His angels wings and His ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule or authority, power or dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Paul expresses that Jesus is above all created beings, whether they be earthly kings or angelic dominions that people have set up systems of worship around. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Scripture time and time again makes it clear that Jesus is not an angel. He is not an angelic being. He is not a created emanation. He is the creator of all things and is worshipped by angels. This is because He's not just the Creator God, He is the goal of creation. He is the firstborn holding the position of highest honor because He is Creator God and created all things and He is the goal of creation. 
latter part of verse 16, all things have been created through Him and are for Him. All of creation began with Him and it will end with Him. Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, of the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Philippians 2.11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things that exist now exist to bring God glory, whether they want to or not. They will in the end. Every one of us who know Jesus will one day proclaim His name in heaven and those who did not will bow the knee before they head off into eternal condemnation. He is the firstborn. He is the Creator God. He is the goal of creation. And He is its sustainer. Jesus is the sustainer of creation. Verse 17, For He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Here we see Paul describe Jesus as the one who holds creation together. He cannot be subject to creation or some kind of created being if he himself is the one who created it and is holding it together. How does that work? I created you, I'm, I'm holding you together, but I have to listen to you. What? That doesn't make any sense. That's like my sandwich saying to me, I know you made me and you were holding me together, but you can't eat me because I'm in charge. It's not how this works, sandwich. The Bible translated here says he holds all things together. This is the Greek term synestikin. It is, in, is a verb in the perfect Greek tense. Okay? Now, the perfect tense in Greek is defined as such. It is a continuous action based upon a past action. Okay? And in this case, the past action was creating everything. The continuing action is sustaining everything. He is continuing to sustain it. He has done so since He created it, and He will sustain it until at which such a time He decides, no more. It's over now. He holds all things together. He's doing it right now. And He's doing it right now, and it confuses everything that scientists try and study. Okay? Quoting... Uh, in his commentary, Colossians, MacArthur quotes a theoretical physicist describing how nucleuses hold together. He says, Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has just drawn of the oxygen nucleus. Here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of the tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, Hey, just inside the nucleus. Outside the nucleus, we got eight electrons running around up there. But inside the nucleus are 16 tiny particles, eight positively charged and eight with no charge. Early physicists had discovered that like, charge, that like charges of electricity and are like magnetic poles. Hey, if they are like charged, they repel each other. And if they are unlike, they attract each other. The entire history of this electrical phenomenon and electrical equipment is based upon these principles and is known as Combs' Law of Electrostatic Force 
and the law of magnetism. What's wrong here? What's inside that nucleus? Eight positively charged particles and eight with no charges. What's holding this together? Why doesn't, he says, the nucleus fly apart? And therefore, why don't all atoms fly apart? In quoting the same scientist, whose name is Chestnut, who penned an article, he goes on to describe a test that were done in the 1920s where they smashed atoms together. Not a July 4th activity. I do not recommend that. Well, in these experiments, they determined it's actually pretty difficult to break atoms apart. And they developed a principle. The principle of strong nuclear force holds atoms together. Cool. What is that? It's strong nuclear force. Well, how does it work? Well, it's really strong. Okay, how does it work on the nucleus? Well, it's tiny like the nucleus. You have no idea, do you? No. A strong nuclear force holds these things together. A physicist by the name of George Gamlow stated, the fact is we live in a world in which every object is a potential nuclear explosive. Carl T. Darrow, another theoretical physicist, stated that all massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if they should have, they should have blown apart instantaneously. What's holding things together? Strong nuclear force. What is that? It's nothing. Christ holds all things together. He is the one who takes the chaos and makes it into a cosmos. But he's not going to do this forever. There is coming a time in which he will release his sustaining grace from this world. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Jesus is going to let go one day. Judgment will come. Until that point, we should thank God for His sustaining grace. In creation, no created thing can claim the kind of power that Jesus has. There is no system, no science that can hold all things together like He can. Now looking at the clock, we're not making it to point three today. So, goal for today, failed. But, we will continue tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, don't come back tomorrow. <laughs> Next Sunday. A seeing Jesus Christ, who He is, as who He is, will keep us from heresy. Jesus is the image of the otherwise invisible God. He added flesh to Himself at the Incarnation. He did not lose anything. In being born, he simply took on flesh, being 100% God and 100% man. He holds the highest place in all creation. He holds the title of firstborn. Nothing exists that he did not create. He is the creator of all things. He is the goal of all creation. He is the sustainer holding it together. And when you... Try and think about that and how that works. That is utterly amazing. That He created us and holds us. How can we respond in any other way than to worship Him? How can anything but Him be preeminent in our life? How can anything take the awe and reverence from Him? 
There's a story of a South American company who purchased a printing press from a North American company. They were having problems getting the machine to work together properly, and so they contacted this printer press company, and they said, this is broken, send us someone to fix this. And so the company does. And they look at him and they say, this guy's too young. We want a more experienced technician to work on this. To which they received notice from the company, no, he made the machine, he can fix it. This is true of Jesus. He created the world, he holds it together. We can and should always trust him with what goes on here. We should not look to anything else, no scientific system, no, I don't know, philosophical explanation. We should look to Jesus. And we should praise God. We have access to the power that created the universe. That creator can interact with us. And we can know him. And that should cause just thankfulness and praise to him. Well, because we're not getting to point three, let's close in prayer. Great God and Father, we are thankful to you for your creation, for your power, for your sustaining grace, for your salvation, Lord. We thank you that you have reached down when you did not need to. You reached down and saved us, Lord. You welcome us into your family. I pray that we would every day sing your glory and praise, that we would worship you, that we would be in awe of you, and we would allow the truth of your preeminence to shape our interactions with one another, with family, and in worship to you. Pray right now as we go out from here that you would be with us all, that you would be glorified in our conversations today. In your son's name we pray this. Amen.